Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. I'm in New York City with two individuals who are geniuses when it comes to entrepreneurship. And one of the things we talk about at Share Strength a lot is not just entrepreneurship in the business sense, but entrepreneurship in the social entrepreneurship sense, how you use business principles and entrepreneurial principles to solve social problems. So that's something I hope we can get into in this conversation. But with me at the table here is Neil Braun, longtime board member uh, of Share Our Strength. I'm going to say 20 years, Neil, right? At least, at uh, least. Which is amazing. And now Dean of the Lubin School of Business at uh, Pace University. Neil, we're, we're going to come back to your resume in just a moment. But I have to say, as I was like reviewing it, and I mentioned this to you a moment ago, just the breadth of your experience, particularly in the media world, is just, it's really remarkable. Like what a career you've had. And I just want to hear about how it started and how you how you think about it now with some a little bit of distance from it um, in yeah, academia. Yeah, I've, I've been very lucky and had a lot of opportunity and tried to take advantage of it. And we've also got with us Shu Chowdhury, who is the CEO of a company called Solido, working in um, the uh, kind of, I guess, at the intersection of restaurants and technology. Shu, uh, you've had a career that spans finance, aerospace, defense, uh, and you've ended up in a space that's near and dear to our hearts because Share Our Strength is all about working with the, the restaurant industry. And I'm going to really want to hear about what you're doing and how you got into that as well. But thanks for being here. Of course. Looking forward to sharing. So thanks. Neil, let's start with you. When I say remarkable resume, I'm talking about uh, HBO, Imagine Films, Viacom, president of NBC uh, Network, um, and now uh, since 2010, I think, uh, dean of the business school at Pace. I, I know you started out as a lawyer with a really great firm here in New York, Paul Weiss. Did you ever see this coming? Was your career a straight line? Was it zigs and zags? Uh, not even. I, I had no inkling. Um, in fact, when students come to me now to talk about what they should major in, my first line is often, I'm the dean of a business school. I didn't even go to business school. Um, um, <laughs> and, and my career path has really been, it's really been about, you know, it's a very analogous idea to the whole idea of share our strength. Um, for most of my career, I've asked myself the question, where can I add the most value based on who I am, based on my experience to date, based on my values, based on my contacts? And often the answer to that is someplace where there's nobody else like you. So, so I, if, if you, and I tell students, and I, this is what I've done, is if, if I believe I can add value someplace, I network my way to somebody where I can make the case, whether there's a job open or not. I don't look for jobs. I look for places where I can add value. And, um, and that's, been very successful for me. So I became president of the NBC television network, never having worked at a network, but having worked in every other aspect of television. Um, I mean, uh, I'll tell you a quick story about it because it's, it's actually you know, a, a pretty apocryphal story. I read a book called The Late Shift in anticipation of meeting Bob Wright, uh, the CEO of NBC at that time. And it was the story about whether he should give Jay Leno or David Letterman The Tonight Show when Johnny Carson retired. I read that whole book and I kept thinking to myself, he's thinking about this all wrong. So when I got an introduction to Bob Wright, he, he didn't even really know who I was at that point. I told him that. And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you were thinking like a network executive. I have one eleven thirty time slot. Who do I give it to? I said, but I think like a television executive. I'm thinking you. I have two commercially proven franchises, the greatest scarcity in the business. How do I keep them both? Because when I was at Viacom, I made a bid to take Letterman into syndication and offered him $60 million. I said to Bob, what if, what if you had made both of them big 1130 on the air guaranteed payments? Maybe you don't have to show this now on CBS. And he said, I don't know if that would have worked, but you're right. I never would have thought of that. <laughs> and, and that was, and so that's how I got a seat at the table. And that's kind of been my strategy for building a career. And the entertainment industry to begin with, were you doing entertainment law when you were a lawyer and then uh, that, that you kind of slid into that? How did you I was, so immersed uh, in it? Uh, Paul Weiss did have an entertainment law department, but I was a corporate lawyer. And I was in the associate's lunchroom one day, and, the, and an entertainment associate was talking about this new client he was excited about uh, that was figuring out a new way to finance films, uh, pitching the U.S. Small Business Administration that independent producers were essentially independent, uh, small businessmen who were trying to compete with the oligopoly of major studios in Hollywood, and they needed an independent source of financing. And so I... They, they were, and they were looking for a corporate associate to work on it. So I got up from my lunch, and I went to the assigning partner, and I said, pick me. And uh, he did. And so I, I, 
I became an expert at this SB, this very narrow way of the U.S. Small Business Administration empowering independent producers, and I left the law firm to join the client, and, and I went from being the lowest guy on the rung, lowest rung of the ladder at Paul Weiss to being the client, and 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 Paul Weiss was my law firm, and that's how we learned it together. Uh, and I know, I, the, I know you were involved in a number of uh, important films. The one that jumps out at me is Gandhi, just because I loved that film, and I was like, wow, I can't believe I know somebody who was even associated with that. Yeah, um, it was very empowering. I mean, you know, the, the, it's a great story. The script had been around for eighteen years; it had been passed. Is that right? I mean, every major studio had passed on it. Nobody wanted to make the movie. Who wanted to see a movie about Gandhi? Um, and um, Richard Attenborough, Sir Richard Attenborough, maybe he's Lord now. I, I've lost track. Um, but he uh, he was a director, and he had the script, and he wanted to do it. And um, we we uh, my firm, the, the firm that I left the, the law firm for, we gave put him the first two million dollars on the bet that we could raise. I think it was the other eighteen million necessary to make the movie. And uh, we made it in India. It was an interesting financing l- lesson because what we did, we, we could get so much services out of India by their contribution. They were trying to convert their soft currency into hard currency. So by, by uh, investing in rupee and recouping in hard dollars, it was a good deal for the government of India, and they gave us everything we needed. Incredible. Incredible. Uh, shoot, let's talk about your background. You've worked through a number of different sectors in the business and finance world. Um, where did that start for you? I know that you're a Penn grad, as Neil and I are. We've got three Penn grads at the table here. We'll sing the red and the blue. Um, yeah. So uh, t- tell us, you left Penn, and then what happened? So you know, initially, I thought I would come out with like a you know, computer science and finance degree and put it to work on Wall Street. Went there, saw a lot of really, really interesting things, learned a lot about financing. But what I saw was that like every single group that we provided money for was either like someone who had learned how to work with makers or like builders or was a builder themselves that learned how to operate a business. And so I kind of decided like, hey, that's really what I want to do. That's when I went back to Penn, got my master's in electrical engineering. It was a really interesting time in 2000 because everything was like, you know, the world was like 2G moving to like 3G wireless. <laughs> like, yeah, after looking around, I, I wanted to be in a business where I actually like built something. So that's how the aerospace thing kind of happened where you know I was a software engineer went to work for like a big aerospace consulting firm where like Boeing Lockheed all these guys were our clients and it was really interesting because I got to like you know you're a kid and you put together like Legos and you're like oh, I wonder what this would look like when it flies <laughs> and now all of a sudden they're like hey here's like four million parts and 140,000 sub-assemblies like figure out how to coordinate that over nine months and make sure that the plane doesn't come out of the sky and it was uh, really cool because there's a lot more to it right there's labor, there's stock management, there's coordination of the supply chain across like the sub assemblies and how they come in. And I, you know, being a geek, like that was very, very cool. It wasn't what you talked about at the bar though. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So when I was at Penn, I met like a very young Steven Starr when he only had like a couple of restaurants. You met him at Penn. Yeah, because I used to go to the Continental Diner all the time, which was one of his first restaurants. And literally, like, the chef was like, dude, you're here more than our owner. You should, like, meet him at some point. You know, we sat down across from each other, shared the whole, like, you know, kind of immigrant, now entrepreneur kind of story. Little did I know this guy was going to go on to open, like, 40-plus restaurants. And Is that what he's got? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was just a tremendously good, good guy. Kind of the way the story goes, the genesis behind Salido was I was in one of his restaurants, like with, with him and uh, his former COO, Howard Ween, when their point of sale crashed. And their point, of, explain what the point of sale is. So, this is where like your waiter takes your order, they put in, uh, you know, they, they have access to a menu, they put in all the items. Then, when you're ready to pay, cash or credit, they run this all through that system. It's basically a, a cash register that's like, that evolved 30 years ago, but then kind of stopped. Um, and then no one really cared about it because, you know, small and medium businesses in America, it's like they're hard to sell to. These like amazing restaurants, which are basically like symphonies, you have these magical experiences. I don't think a lot of people like realize it's like, it's not what you said, it's not what you did, but it's how you made the person feel. And that means that a lot of things in a row had to go really, really right. And it's like when I saw that, my mind started to go and I just said, wow, like there is an opportunity here. And then when we saw that not only was there an opportunity to 
help this industry, but also create a, a different way for them operators to not just monetize their their businesses operationally, but ways for them to leverage their data and make money that they're they have never even thought about. That's when things became really fun. And that's when this journey kind of started for me. And I feel, Neil, like uh, she was singing out of a songbook that we're very familiar with. We've got a board colleague named Danny Meyer, who I know you know, Shu, who talks about, you know, the whole objective is how you make people feel. I mean, you just said it, you know, as, as, as crisply as he would. And that's been, I think, so much what we try to bring to the ethic that we try to bring to the work at Share Our Strength. Yeah, you know, I still give out, I give out Danny's book, Setting the Table, as not only a way to talk about customer service, but to talk about relationships, because that book's all about relationships. And um, one of the things I always remember from uh, from the book is that there's always a, ch- never let a relationship end on a bad note. Oh, there's always an opportunity to write the next chapter. And I think that's a great philosophy for anybody to live their life, frankly. Yeah. I, I even use it when a friend will come to me for relationship advice, and I, I, we give setting the table to every every new team member to partners because it's like, look, we truly do believe in team first. Like, if there is a problem with like somebody in the restaurant, and you can trust or your business, and you can trust that the person on your team, they came in a certain way, you believe in them a certain way. Why are you trying to question them first? It, it says something about you if you couldn't manage like that, like those different outcomes that might happen. And so when we say like, like a friend will come to me for relationship advice, I was like, are you, are you thinking from a team first perspective? Like, or are you just criti- like analyzing what someone may have done wrong and what the effect was to the other person? And it's like, it's really funny because it's a fundamental principle, I think, about charity starting at home, Right. And then how it goes out from there. Well, and Neil, we were talking uh, before Shu got here, you and I were talking before we started recording about your management philosophy. And it sounds like very similar to what Shu just said. Right. I, I, you know, probably the most important management lesson I ever got was from one of my principal mentors, Frank Biondi, who hired me both at HBO. And then he became CEO of Viacom when Sumner Redstone bought the company and he hired me again there. And after my first year there, I asked him if he would, you know, how am I doing, Frank? And he said, oh, you're doing great. I said, no. You know, let's talk. Teach me. Tell me. Tell me something I could do better. And he, what he said to me really was an epiphany. He said, "You know, uh, I trust you as a matter of integrity. Over the years, I've learned to trust your judgment in more and more circumstances, and you always get it done. And um, that's all I really care about. I trust you, and you get it done. How you do it, the more different ways that people do it, the stronger we are as a team. And uh, that's really, you know, I I left that office saying, how lucky am I to have a boss like that." And realizing I wasn't being a boss like that, and it completely changed the way I'm, I I manage people. Yeah, focusing on like the why and the what as like a someone who oversees someone, but not trying to say to get involved in the how. It's like you don't get involved in the how until someone like shows you that they they couldn't figure it out. Then you exactly. try to help, right? Yep. You're like, hey, here's the framework I would use to get that done. And it's really funny because you know. For us as a company at Salido, we were so small for so long, like eight to 10 people building like a ton of software. And now that we're like like 30 people, one of the things that we we talk about is that in order to get a result, you really have to care personally. And if you you don't have real relationships with your team, like how do you actually say, hey, I want this, and they care enough in both directions, full duplex to to actually drive what's there. And one, like I had this like crazy night, like back in March where I just woke up and I said, oh my God, we just tripled in size. And I don't know, like the significant others of like five of the people who we just hired who have been in the office for like a month. And you're like, we're still small enough where that's not acceptable. (laughs) Right. And so, you know, it's funny, you kind of have to remind yourself of what your grinding principles are in terms of like running or, or even making a business. So, Shu, at some point, uh, you were describing this kind of light bulb went off for you. You saw this opportunity in the restaurant business. How did you even start? I mean, that takes a lot of like scrappiness to start something and a lot of entrepreneurship. How did, what was the first thing you did? Oh, look, I, I had been lucky in a sense, just in terms of being able to see people do kind of the impossible and that my father's an entrepreneur, my mother's an entrepreneur. Like, my father, you know, worked for big, companies and engineering companies then built his own business scaled that my mother did the same thing also an engineer did that so you know when i was in seventh grade in the summers my dad would have me stuff in payroll envelopes in like the 80s 
once I started to get a little bit of, you know, osmosis of like what it was like to be touching a business, watching how someone understood their cost and how they sold something for a price, it left like a, an imprint. So Neil, as dean of the business school at Pace, um, do you look at and listen to Shu and think, okay, this this is what we want. I'll have what he's this, having. Yeah, I'll have what he's <laughs> yeah. having in terms of yeah. what we want our students to be able to accomplish, how, how, how we want them to approach it. And I guess what's kind of the philosophy that you've tried to instill there? Um, well, you know, everything you just talked about was the power of experiential learning. I mean, you know, everything you just referred to, you said osmosis. I mean, it's, it's I believe, strongly that that's the best way to learn and and you know share our strength believes in bearing witness and and it's it, you have to feel the feelings you have to see, you, you can't learn how to be an entrepreneur from a book you can't learn how to you, you have to do it. you have to apply you have to learn basic skills you have to put yourself in a context with people who've done it and are doing more um, so that you can learn from them and be part of it so so our philosophy is very much about experiential learning. Pace University, you know, we're, we're not considered, you know, um, among the most selective universities. We are 94% of our students are first uh, get financial aid, 40% are first in their family to uh, go to college. Wow. Um, we're ranked number one in the country for social, upward social mobility um, and fo- financial mobility, taking students from the bottom, students from the bottom quintile and turning them into alumni in the top quintile of the economy. And it's implicit in a lot of their lives. They have very similar experiences. They, a lot of their families are own restaurants or own other kinds of small businesses. Um, they're they're working. They're, they, this is the working class. It's the aspiring heart of America, as our former president of, of the university used to call them all the time. The the people who really make everything work every day, um, trying to change the trajectory of their lives. It's all all about empowerment. We're not the, the kind of environment that is judgmental. It's not a it's not a kill or be killed, dog eat dog competitive environment. It's a highly supportive, helping each student become the best version of themselves, a holistic approach to what that means. Because the only thing I'm... I mean, right now in business education, think about what's going on in the world. Technology is fundamentally transforming the nature of work. You already have lots of categories of jobs being displaced by technology. Even the, even the accounting firms, um, the idea of, of the annual audit, it, machine learning and artificial intelligence um, can do better than the human being can do. They can they can read all the contracts instead of sampling some of the contracts. Trying to educate um, this generation of students to be competent and capable to be uh, self-sufficient for their lifetime is in transition because just teaching the traditional disciplines of business in silos is not going to do it. You have to be a creative problem solver. You have to you you have to be, have great interpersonal skills. You have to be able to uh, uh, look at data and be able to make useful knowledge and action out of it. Um, uh, and and you have to be highly flexible. You have to be adaptive. And um, it's it's a it's a tr- in all candor, it's a tremendous tremendous challenge. I have a we have a very wide bell curve of students who come to Pace. I have I have a group of students who are highly engaged, very much cut from the cloth that when you speak, I, I, I can see them in you. And they're my inspiration, frankly. They're, they've overcome more adversity at this stage of their lives just to get to college than I've had to overcome in my entire life. Hmm. And I'm so inspired by them. And I, I love those students. I many, truly uh, love them. Many first or second generation Americans, I'm uh, assuming? Many. I mean, yep. we're incredibly diverse. We're the, if you walk around our school, it looks like the United Nations. And uh, they're incredible, and, and and then we have a lot of students who come who barely can do. They're not really ready for college level work, but we have specialized programs, remedial help, tutoring programs, all kinds of things to help bootstrap them. The biggest challenge for me is the heart of the bell curve. The students who aren't self engaged enough and aren't getting the special attention because they uh, the remedial help, and and trying to figure out how to flip that light switch uh, uh, for them that gets them to recognize that this is the biggest opportunity they're going to have in life to to prepare themselves to to be successful. The the diversity at Pace seems to be so pronounced. Uh, was the school intentional about it? How did it come about? It, be- it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy once you have the first cohort, essentially, because people pick colleges um, based on how they feel when they visit. Um, and if they can see themselves... Uh, in the faculty, if they can see themselves in the student body, if they can see how they would feel like this is my place, uh, then they naturally come. Um, Pace was started in 1906, 
And it was literally started as an institute for practicing accountants. And um, it was really a, a commuter school at that point. Um, and so it was really everybody in New York City who was trying to become an accountant um, or was trying to earn their CPA uh, would, would come to pay. So from, from its early days, we drew from every immigrant group um, basically to, to New York City, um, the professional class who were trying to become CPAs. So it's always been in the DNA of our place that we're a highly diverse place that, I mean, I always say to, uh, to prospective students and faculty, um, uh, there is no majority at Pace. We're all minorities because we're so diverse. And, um, and you know, if, you're, if, that's what, if that's what excites you, if, that's, if that feels like home to you, if that's the environment you thrive in, then, then you automatically decide, you know, we're a place for you. You know, you may not have this at your fingertips, but is there, can you tell us the story of a student, you don't have to use a name or anything, and when you talk about some of the adversity they've overcome, what does that typically look like in their lives? Often it's familial, familial, you know, broken homes, uh, uh, really poverty. I mean, there are people on almost full rides because they simply have no wherewithal to to, to come, but but somehow they have found the inner strength to deserve a chance. They've demon, they've already demonstrated something that says, okay, this is a person that's worth a bet on, and um, and so I, I one person comes to mind. Um, I didn't know her. She was a business student. I didn't know her initially, but one day I got an email from the dean of students for the entire university saying we have this exceptional person. She comes from this troubled background. She's done everything right since she got here. She has this unique opportunity to go to a conference. I think it was in Jakarta, actually. It was an Oxfam meeting, and and she and she's she wants to dedicate her life to. To, to social justice and 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 addressing poverty, even though she was a business student, but she doesn't have the money to go to this conference. Can anybody help? And so I have a certain amount of discretionary funds I can use as dean. And this is exactly you know you don't want to when somebody's that motivated and and that capable and has all the right stuff and is doing everything they possibly can. That's the person you want to give a helping hand to when they need it. So I said to the group that had been addressed in this email. Um, I can come up with half if the rest of you can come up with the other half. And so we did, and and and, and so the dean of students informed the student it was, was going to happen. The next thing I know, Diane was her name. She she showed up unannounced at the threshold of my office. To, I'm going to get emotional even talking about it because it, it, these are the moments that keep me being dean because there's a lot of frustration in working in an academic environment, especially when you come from a... Uh, a, a, a you know a commercial environment where you know performance is everything. Um, uh, that's not always the case in an academic environment. Um, uh, she came to thank me, and she was so grateful um, and and tearful in my office. And um, and she she went to the conference, and and when she graduated, she she's been working in the nonprofit sector ever she, since wow. she left. Well, you you need to keep being dean. <laughs> well, those <laughs> are important. the moments. Yes. Those are the moments. Uh, Shu Neal was talking about technology changing the workplace in dramatic ways, and you're living and breathing that uh, in the restaurant industry. Talk a little bit about uh, how Saluda works, uh, what problem you're solving, and particularly where this is going in terms of technology in the workplace. You know, for sure, our strength, the restaurant industry is the core of what we do. The better the restaurants and the industry do, the you know the more likely they're able to engage in community. So I feel a real connection to what you're doing, and I feel like it's really important long term to our work. And you're working now with some of the best restaurants in the country. Um, but give us a sense of where you think things are going in terms of technology. Yeah, I mean, look, like if you look across every industry, whether it be healthcare, transportation, you know, even just looking at Uber. Like when iPhones first came out and Kleiner Perkins announced in like 2006 they were going to put out an app fund for 100 million bucks, people are like, uh, what's that? Like, is that really happening? Like, we're just getting into, you know, using websites at scale. And now you have things like Uber. You have like this app world where, you know, whether you want to believe it or not, that phone in your hand, it's not a phone. It's an extension of you. Right, your email, your text, your your voice, all the types of information that you consume, content, what you push out there in the world, and when you have that, and then you work in a restaurant, and then you go from that world to kind of a world that's in the trapped in the '80s from a technology perspective. Right there is kind of like where it starts, and so you know when we talk about 
how we, we built our business, we started off with like a lot of research where we had to think about what are the key insights behind a problem that we're solving? Is there really a problem there that we can address? And, you know, the first one was like just seeing all these different systems, not having a common information store. So you couldn't just say, hey, I want to look at labor sales data. No, no, you have to go to two different systems, pull them out and push them into a spreadsheet. So insight number one was that invaluable data exists in the restaurant environment, but it can't be used without a lot of difficulty for operational or even other commercial uses that don't exist yet. And so that was number one. Uh, the second one was that, look, the technology revolution's happened. You see it everywhere, palm of your hand, Android, iPhone, whatever, universal bandwidth and connectivity, but then inside the restaurant, everything's like just, you know, stone ages. The third is one that I'm super passionate about, which you know, in the restaurant environment, it's like technology's driving something that we call extinction economics, where if you have top line, any industry, you have top line compression and bottom line compression, meaning, look, if the stock market's going up, rent's going to go up. You can't do anything about that. You can't complain about rent. But labor costs are rising. But that's important because people need to live. Like, no industry ever has anyone ever come out and said, oh, minimum wage shouldn't go up because we want our business to succeed, but we don't care about people living below the poverty line, which is just kind of mind boggling. And then you know, technology costs, monthly recurring charges, like every new thing. And then from a top line, you have all these companies coming in and taking a percentage of sales, like delivery platforms taking 10, 15, 20, 30%. And the adage in the hospitality industry is the restaurant operator will step over a dollar in savings to pick up a dime in top line, you know, and, and that's the truth. So if you have these like trends existing, it's the equivalent of you being a farmer, the technology revolution happened and you just hire a hundred people with hand tills, hand, hand plows, when you know you can buy tractors and figure out how to get into this world. But the problem is the tractor doesn't exist and we're the tractor, right? So, you know, when we went through um, our process, you know, I guess there was a fourth insight too. So I, I guess the fourth one, and this is the one that's the most important to me is that the life of the hospitality worker just isn't that great. You know, you get to do these amazing performances, but then you don't get paid right unless you're the owner. And if you are like an amazing cook, all the, you know, kind of profit alignment, it just isn't even there for you unless you graduate through this thing. It's like you're an intern until you're not, right? So those were the key insights. And so what did we decide to do? It's like we looked at other industries where you have something that manages your sales, something that manages your customer information, something that manages your labor, your inventory, and your payments. Like if I'm a restaurant operator, I didn't get into business so that one software company could own the relationship between me and the customer, not me. One so another software company could own the relationship between me and my labor, not me. Another software company could own the, the relationship between me and my inventory. And then another one could own the relationship between me and my supplier. And this is the worst one, where all those companies own the relationship between me and my money, but not me. <laughs> <laughs> So when you see like archaic technology, misguided intermediaries that are not aligned with the interests of the business, that's when you're like, this is, this is awesome. But the question is like, can we really do this? So part of like my backstory was that, you know, as an engineer, I did what any good engineer who wants to go in the hospitality industry would do is I opened my own restaurant. So Part of the conditions of my investment were I had to be the one to set up the reservation system, the POS, understand labor, shadowed all the different roles. Then I started to write specs. And that's when I went to my old friend, Steven Starr, and showed him a POS that I had built from scratch and said, like, look, imagine something that tracks your customers, talks to everything. We just start here, but then we slowly build the rest of the stack. But what my goal is, is it's not to figure out how to charge you money. It's to figure out how to take your information, drive your business in a way that reflects value that you'll want to pay me for, but then partner with you on your data to commercialize it. And I'll just give you a simple example. Like we walk into a restaurant, the three of us, every bottle of liquor that's out there is like a billboard. Yet at Best Buy, they pay for shelf space, but at a restaurant, they don't, right? You look at Best Buy, 
back in the day, like amazing warehouse that replaced so many different places. But then their stock starts tanking. People are like, I want to go to the Apple store. Like I enjoy my online experience. Then the execs at Best Buy were like, you know what? Why don't we just put a Samsung store or a Verizon store, an AT&T store, an Apple store inside our store? So now we basically built a mall of electronics inside. And I do it too. When I go to the suburbs to see my parents, I'm like, hey, dad, the gym was fun, but let's go to Best Buy <laughs> and like walk around. And he's like, sure. <laughs> like, you know, and we're like seeing all this different type of technology and these branded experiences. And it's kind of awesome. Why can't I have that kind of experience in a restaurant? When these people, these hardworking women and men in this industry are already putting on the symphony with no instruments. What if you gave them the instruments? What if you gave them the love? What if you gave them the ease? And then all of a sudden, what happens to the business? And every investor that we talked to at the time is like, oh, point of sale has been done. It's been done. It's been done. Like, what are you guys doing? I'm like, we're not doing that. We're building like an operating system environment the same way that when you looked at your iPhone, you couldn't fathom applications doing what they do today. We're doing the same thing, but we're doing it very industry spe specific to solve a much broader business problem. Uh, let me ask you to say um, just a little bit more about the fourth insight, which was the life of hospitality workers isn't great. How do you, how does, does your effort solve for that? If we get to scale, and our labor system does what it's supposed to do. Imagine a single parent of two being able to get to work 30 minutes later efficiently and being able to leave 45 minutes earlier because we've already automated the tipping functions yeah. and those different mechanics. And let's say we get that out to a million people. Well, what if we get it out to 2 million people? It's just like the civil engineering question of what the value of building a bridge that connects right. over a Got river it. is. Yep. The, the often maligned millennial generation um, is looking for meaning in their work. I mean, it's 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 really one of the great things that's happened. Is that it, they yes they want to make a living. Yes they you know they have all the normal instincts of of uh, of any human being of wanting to be able to provide for themselves and for eventually for family. Um, but they also want context. They want they they ask questions like, well, how is this relevant to the world? I mean, the 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 lexicon of environmental and social and governance, the ESG things. I mean, it's no longer on the periphery of business conversation. It's now in the mainstream. I mean, not to overstate it, I mean, it's, you know, maximizing shareholder wealth is still what drives companies and especially public companies. But um, there's a group of investors to, to, in order to attract talent. You have to be able to answer that question. You have to, it's like, how are you, how is this company a good citizen? How is, how is being part of this um, adding to the to the wealth of the community, and are you seeing that um, in students at Pace? And are you, um, I guess, are you being intentional about kind of inculcating it or exposing them to it? I guess. Well, I don't believe in preaching. I don't think that works. Um, I, I think experiential learning is is how it happens. So every student at Pace is required to take at least one course in sort of a civic responsibility kind of thing that has a community uh, participation element to it. So everybody does at least something. But as I was saying before, the nature of who my students are, they've already figured out that education and uh, the skills we teach in business school, no matter what, I, when I talk to prospective students and parents about what an undergraduate business education, I said, look, no matter what, whatever you want to do in life, you have to identify a need or an opportunity, develop a plan for addressing it, develop a budget for your plan, figure out how to fund your budget, what are the messages for all the stakeholders, what kind of human resources do you need to surround yourself to complement your own talents, and what are the metrics by which you're going to measure your progress. That's what we teach in business school. Um, so you can apply that no matter what you want to do. Um, and um, so... We, we have field study trips to, uh, to Brazil where we work with social entrepreneurs in the Brazilian rainforest. We have a group that does tax returns f on a pro bono basis for small businesses uh, in New York City. Um, uh, we, we have all kinds of opportunities. Um, so, so implicit in their lives, they've learned this. Then we have some requirements for them, and then we give them lots a menu of opportunities. If you... To, to apply their business skills. If you think about it this way, who needs the most help and willing to take it from students? The people most in need. Um, so, um, so a lot of what we do with our students is 
is give them the structure to practice what they're learning in the classroom by helping people who need it the most. Mm -hmm. And for you personally, Neil, you must have made a decision eight or nine years ago now that uh, in terms of the social impact you want to have, you can do that in academia. You've talked about kind of the frustrations of academia, but you also told a story that showed the rewards of it in terms of the, the young woman you were talking about. How do you think about that in terms of just your own aspiration? So this is the 13th organization I've worked for in my life. Um, so I'm a millennial at heart. Um, uh, but, you know, I had, like you said, I've had some great jobs. I mean, when I was president of the NBC Network, I got to go to the Olympics. I got to go to the Super Bowl. I mean, uh, when I was with Imagine Entertainment, you know, I was, uh, I stayed at the Beverly Hills Hotel. I mean, I, I, I've lived that. I've been to the Cannes Film Fest. I did all that stuff and it was great. And I don't have any regrets about spending any of my time doing any of that. But it wasn't inherently satisfying. Um, and that's why I kept moving on because for most of my I'm life- I'm glad I've, to hear you say that because I have some regrets about not doing any of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would like to have done I, some I, of that. It was fun. No regrets. <laughs> um, I enjoyed doing all those things, but never enough to do them for the rest of my life. And so for most of my life, I thought I was, you know, I, I thought I was trying to figure out what my passion was, talking about ad passion and stir. I was trying to figure it out. It wasn't until my 50s that I had the, the realization that my passion- is taking my unique set of experiences and figuring out where I can add the most value and doing a deep dive into something new. That's what I love to do. That's what I've consistently done. And I did it sort of on an unconscious way. And, and then I, in my 50s, I realized, okay. So when I thought about, well, where could I add the most value given everything I had done? And where could I have some of the feeling I get, you know, in all kind of candor from being part of Share Our Strength, that incredible satisfaction of doing something important with a lot of smart people who all bring different strengths to the table, I thought, I said to myself, I think I could add value at a business school. So I did what any of us would have done. I Googled New York City business school dean jobs and Pace was looking. <laughs> wow. And, and my pitch was exactly a share our strength pitch. It was, don't hire me if you want me to learn to be a dean the way an academic would be a dean. I'm going to delegate most of those responsibilities to the people who already know how to do those things. Hire me because I'm going to behave more like a CEO. I'm going to think about competitive strategy. I'm going to think about new product introduction. I'm going to think about quality control. And so it gave me a way to both uh, exercise my kind of uh, competencies, but do it in a context where the emotional satisfaction of helping people at what I think is the most interesting stage of life, you know, late teenage and 20s, when you're really separating from your parents and you're trying to figure out who you are in the world and trying to get on a trajectory for success. Um, if I can be part of that conversation, if I can be that third-party adult in the lives of those people, um, helping them explore that and, and providing enough structure for them uh, to, to, to find who they are and do it for themselves, I can't imagine anything more satisfying. And it's turned out to be true. I mean, I, I've never – it's been the most frustrating environment I've ever worked in, but it's also been the most satisfying job I've ever had. And sure, does some of that resonate with you? Because, I mean, in, in a different way, you're hiring millennials and mentoring them as well. Yeah. I mean, look, we have like a, a broad range of, you know, some of the people on our management team are, you know, sub 30. And then there are some people who are on the other side of 40. So it's like, you know, there's like a real, you know, N equals distribution that we kind of get to see in a lot of different styles. Um, so, you know, if call it what it is, like to me, it's like, everything's a bit of chaos management. What you're really searching for is like in that chaos, this like common bond of purpose that doesn't just have to do with like financial outcomes. That's a very important one, but it's that combination of different things together that create a platform of reliability within the community that you're building. And if you, if someone can't care about someone they don't know, right, because it's the right thing to do, it often happens that they can't connect with the thing that you're actually trying to do. And it's like really funny because over time, what I've noticed is like, I'll have a super high performer, like, and and we've let go people that are like just absolute superstars in a business sense of the word, but they destroy your community and your company. And like, that's such an important thing that you're like, oh my gosh, like they write code really fast or, oh my gosh, they sell so great. But then they come into the office and everyone's like, oh my gosh, like, why is this person even here? Right. And it, it's really interesting because they'll never do the community stuff. What I feel really great about is some of our alumni have come back to me and been like, look, we de- the new job that we're in, we definitely do some of this stuff, 
but we don't do it the way we did it at Salido, where this was something that was like in our brain, talked about on a monthly basis. We saw quarterly projects that actually happened and we got to participate and drive it. And you know, that's something that I think is really important, whether you're in, in ac the academic world or you're in the commercial world. I, I mean, I tell students all the time, it's, it's really, when I referred earlier to, to the holistic approach to education, it really is about developing the person. It's, it's really not about content. It's, a, it's, it's really about who you are in the world and what are the, what, what, what are the data points you can point to to demonstrate that you are that person. And, you know, it's going back to Danny Meyer again, um, one of the things I love that he, he said, I think he said something like when he hires, by the time he gets to interview somebody for his um, organization, they've already figured out whether they have the fundamental skill sets. Um, the technical skills. The technical skills. That, yeah. What he's looking for, do they inherently enjoy making other people happy? Because he's in the hospitality, because you can't teach that. Um, so looking for those qualities in a person that aren't really, that are inherent rather than teachable are really, I think, how people you know, smart people employ people because if you have that drive, if you have, if you're a self-starter, if you're a continuous learner, if you believe in continuous improvement, you're always working on, on trying to uh, 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 be a better version of yourself, and you're accountable to other people. People will make a bet on you. The, the, employers tell me all the time, "I can teach them what they need to know to be to do the job. Send me the people who you think are the winners." And yeah. So, so do either of you see a point which, uh, where in addition, I guess handing out. Danny's setting the table. Uh, you're handing out a Shu Chorderoy book or a Neil Braun book, or either. Uh, have either of you guys thought about? I mean, you you both have a lot of insights and a lot of you know kind of philosophies that are really anchored in your experience. Is that a possibility? I, I've had the thought, but as you know, as an author of several books. There's a long road between the thought and the execution. Right. Well, we should talk about it. I think it's worth pursuing. <laughs> okay. How All about right. you, Shu? I somehow made it through college and high school without reading a lot. I, and I, I don't understand, like, to this day how that kind of happened, where I just really studied for exams to get to from point A to point B. But I was always kind of doing my own kind of side projects. And then even though I had the first iPod, I didn't start listening to podcasts until maybe, like, two years ago when ad passion and stir started is that what you're trying that's to right tell us? there that's you go that's right okay. that's right all of a sudden <laughs> and it has been one of the most transformative experiences i've ever had in my life i my parents still live in southern new jersey and we have a tradition as a family every sunday morning i drive from new york down to down there with my brother we do like family meal and then we come back and you know he put on um that book about the nike founder shoe dog yep yeah, and, yep. and he he's like, oh, let's try listening to this audiobook. And I'm like, what audiobook? What are you talking about? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, how? and it couldn't compute in my head. Even though, like, I I'm an avid film watcher, and I now I do read a lot of books. I'm like, you're telling me I can consume this content audio? Then he's like, well, have you tried listening to this podcast? I'm like, podcast? I thought that that was something for and. In the context of your question, it's like now that I'm getting invited to come speak on some of these podcasts, it's it's kind of amazing because the stuff that I've been able to learn from different entrepreneurs on different topics, everything from listening to some weird esoteric thing like a TED Talk on physics to something about how you know, the founder of Airbnb like scaled their business or decided to do some customer research, the fact that you can listen to an audiobook or listen to a podcast and basically get what the wealth of someone's life experience is in that period of time is just phenomenal. And look, I hope someday that if I have something valuable to contribute that it hasn't already been written, I can either work with a group of people to kind of get that out there or or do something myself. But that the litmus test has to be that it's actually interesting or impactful. <laughs> well, you know, I, I actually have written a book, um, but it, it's not for publication or public consumption. Um, uh, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. When I, uh, when my kids were uh, five and seven, it's a long time ago. They're twenty six and twenty eight now. A friend of mine, uh, Tony Cox, who had been, uh, he was the CEO of Showtime Networks. He was on the treadmill at the gym, and he, he had congenital heart failure and passed away, and he had two small kids. And it really hit me hard. Um, and 
I thought about my own mortality. And I, um, so for two years, I carried around a, a, a blank page book with me. And I called it my just-in-case book. And I wrote down really not – it wasn't a diary. It was more like all the important lessons I had learned in life, all the things I wanted to make sure I communicated to my kids just in case. And so I did it for about two, three years. And after that, you know, pretty much I had I pretty much written my values. <laughs> I'm, uh, it's a book of my – and and so sat at my night table for 20 years. I turned 65 last November, and I thought, okay, here's the chance for me while I'm living uh, to, to, to put this in the possession of my kids. And so I, I had it typed up. I had it bound and with gold lettering. I did the whole thing. I wrapped it up, and I said, for my 65th birthday, all I really want is for you to have this in your possession. And when you're in a receptive mood, to promise you'll read it someday. And so so I've written one book. Oh, that counts. That's awesome. Well, well you know, when I wrote, uh, I wrote a book called The Cathedral Within, and I dedicated it to my son, Zach, and my daughter, Molly, uh, and I made sure that the first copy that came from the publisher, you know, I personally inscribed to Zach and, one, and to Molly, and I remember taking it to Zach's room. He must have been uh, 10 at the time. Uh, and I handed it to him, and he took it, and he, like, like a frisbee tossed it across the room it was like thanks so much daddy just like tossed it into a pile and i went in every day to see if it had moved <laughs> for like six months it yeah. hadn't moved yeah, yeah. and then but of course you know like a year and a half later i got this lovely note from him like dad i finally read the cathedral within et cetera, et cetera. Same, I had so the same it pays experience. off but you know you have to you have to wait till they're ready well, you know, my wife's a child psychologist, so I've learned that a long time ago. So we are running out of time. Uh, Shu, I'd mentioned uh, to you earlier that we just made our first grant at Share Our Strength. We're so focused on the No Kid Hungry campaign in the U.S., but we were able to make a grant of $100,000 to an organization in India that's working on school meals called Akshaya Patra. Uh, and it, uh, I think you've got a family foundation that's doing some work there as well, so I just wanted to quickly at least make sure we know the name of it and just get a sense of what you're doing. My father and mother started a charity, and, and I think it would be good to see this with a story. So do you guys remember when Slumdog Millionaire came out? Yeah, of course. So, you know, I saw it. And I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. This is like one of the best movies I've ever seen in my life. So, of course, I called my parents. I said, I, when I come down this weekend, I'm going to take you to go see this movie, Slumdog Millionaire. They're like, oh, yeah, we heard about it. Sounds great. We're going to go watch it. So we go to the movie theater. We watch the whole movie. And I'm, the second time was even better because I picked up on a bunch of things I hadn't seen. And when I turn around, I look over at my parents, and they're both weeping. And I looked at them, and I was like, oh, they must have loved the movie so much. And as we walk out, they're just like, we don't do enough. That is the reality, right? That's been like glorified in this movie or documented in this movie. And since I was, you know, college age, maybe in the early 2000s, my family had started a foundation called Liberty Foundation. It was dedicated to three, three things, br bringing food, bringing art and education to disadvantaged children in, in India. My father had helped contribute to a couple of schools that are under the umbrella of like the Ram Krishna Mission in in India, specifically in the Calcutta kind of area where where my family's from. And it was like crazy. This movie made them not only go take more of their own wealth to build more schools, but then get other people to kind of activate. And it's kind of crazy. Like you know, I'm an American. I grew up here. I was born here, and we enjoy like a lot of amazing privileges and we also have right next to us like things that need to be taken care of like how does a child who lives like 30 blocks away from me like not know when they're going to get their next meal and the same scenarios exists like on the other side of the world and all over india africa and these different types of places and so the question really becomes like how do you make an impact and you can't solve everything but you can do something incremental every day and that's kind of the value that my parents instilled in me. And it was really nice, slightly confusing. Like you never want to see your parents crying like in, ever. But like the outcome of that scenario was like really powerful for me because you know, I was able to actually connect with their own feelings because to me that was the most entertaining thing in the world. To them that was like a reality that needed to be not just challenged but changed. I want to come out with you and your brother for a family meal with your parents. I want to meet them now. They sound amazing. 
Uh, well, thanks for sharing that. And thanks for, you know, the impact that both of you have had on both the No Kid Hungry campaign and our work and more broadly in the community. Uh, last question I have, probably the toughest one of the day, uh, but we've got a lot of foodies that listen to this podcast. Favorite restaurant in New York City? Um, or at least at what's kind of a, you know, what is a, we often like to think about, like, what's a kind of an undiscovered gem that most people might not know about that you think they should? I know it's a tough one. Well, look, mainstream, straight up, I think Four Charles and Shuko, like Four Charles for like steak, I think they have the best burger in the world. Okay, good to um, know. Where are they? They're right on, the ad- uh, The name is the address, Four yeah, Charles, okay, Charles, literally okay. right off of Greenwich. Yeah. I suggest we go there. Okay. They're awesome. And Shuko for sushi and yep. the experience is just out of this world. What uh, Nick and Jimmy have done is just literally unbelievable. Staff, everything. Great, great, great experience. But I will tell you, my favorite restaurant in the city that I love to go to, which is only open from like 10 to 2, is a lunch counter in the Essex Street Market called Shopsons. So there's Shopsons. Shopsons. It's uh, this guy named Kenny Shopson and his, like, his actual son and basically his adopted son. They run this little lunch counter. And if I told you that Kenny is one of the best Indian chefs in the country, if not the world, it's it's crazy. He has everything from Indian food to Tex-Mex to pastrami sandwiches to Chick-fil-A replica sandwich. It's it's crazy what he has on his menu. Well, sure. I'm going to come back to you because after we made this grant uh, in India, we started talking about could we do something with Indian chefs and do some type of food event in India. Uh, we might do one here. We might do one there. So we're going to have to coordinate on that. Yeah, of course. Uh, Neil, your 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 go to. Well, our our go to celebration place is Gramercy Tavern. I mean, that, Can't it, beat that. It, it, it just it's the traditional celebratory restaurant in New York, and it, it, so it, so for me, the experience of being the food's always great, the service is impeccable, but there's a feeling of being there that just makes every time we're there feel special, and that's like you said, it's all about the feeling. The other thing is that my daughter, uh, who just moved to San Francisco, but before she did, she lived in Greenpoint. And she took me to Paulie G's, which yeah. is a pizza place in Greenpoint. And it's not New York style pizza, but it's the best pizza in New York. <laughs> That's a great place. Okay. Two experts, uh, Shu Chowdhury, uh, CEO of Salido. Thank you so thank you. much for being part of this podcast and being part of Ad Passion and Stir. And Neil Braun, uh, 20 year service on the Share Our Strength Board, not to mention lots of other impacts you're having on uh, the lives of young people at Pace University as Dean of the Business School. Thank you so much. It's a privilege to be partners with you on everything we do together. Thanks. I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.